Welcome to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resiliency looks like from different perspectives. We often focus on the physical, emotional, and social areas of resiliency, but too often we neglect the spiritual pillar. Now, this looks different for everyone. We will be exploring what spiritual resiliency looks like through the eyes of our guests, who are people from all different walks of life. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Success Draft, where we help you transform your dreams into drafted plans. Head over to successdraft.com to get started on your future today. Today's episode's guest is not world famous. He is not a famous author. He is not anyone that most of you know. He is, however, somebody that I've known since, oh, about nine months before I was born. He has always been there for my family. He has always taken care of us. He has always been there by our side. Tonight's guest is my hero, my dad, Howard Coy. Hey, dad, how are you doing? Do I dare use your nickname? Uh, please don't. Please don't. We don't need to do that. <laughs> no matter how much you probably feel like doing that right now. Mm-hmm. See, I have a really good producer and he can cut and splice. So just don't even waste your time, Dad. Oh, I, I may put him to work tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you just can't help calling me that, can you? No. Nope. Let's just not do that. Hey, before we get going too much into this, okay, dad, you know how this goes. You know that I usually start off with five questions. So I'm going to change it up a little bit different for you because I know that you already know most of those questions, but I'll start off with one that I know you know. What is one thing that you find repulsive? Spam. Oh, I knew that was going to be the answer. I know that uh, your daughter-in-law doesn't like that answer, but spam. <laughs> uh, yes, and there's a, quite a story behind it. Well, go ahead and give it to us. So we're getting to know each other, even though we know each other. Well, my dad pastored small churches. And one of the churches back years ago, they didn't have uh, food stamps. They didn't have the cards. They had commodities, and the church believed in tithing on everything they got, so the mm. people would tithe on their commodities. The thing is, the pastor got the commodities that they didn't want. Oh, boy. And one of those commodity items was canned meat, in other words, spam. Mm. We got so much of it. My mother tried to fix it every way under the sun. We had spam and eggs, spam and beans, chicken fried spam, baked spam, uh, spam baked with um, cloves and pineapple, uh, spam and beans. You name it, we had it. Now, did, did Grandma ever try to make a spam minced meat pie? No, but she did make a spam loaf. Oh, 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 yeah. Now, have you ever tried any of the other spams like the, the, the bacon flavored spam or the jalapeno spam? Well, I 
by the time I got away from home, you could open a can of Spam and I could smell it a mile away and immediately hid and get sick. Well, you know what? Whenever we come home, I'm probably going to have Lena bring home some of that uh, bacon flavored Spam or the jalapeno Spam. You might actually do the jalapeno one. You know, Spam was first made in the 1930s, and I just heard the other day they were making a second batch of it. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay, well, now, folks, if you if you know anything about my dad, if you have ever seen any of his, his posts online, he loves to do dad jokes. So here's going to be your second question. What is your favorite bad dad joke? Oh. I, I said favorite. favorite. I said favorite. So, you know, I've gone through so many of them. I guess the, my favorite's the last one I did. Okay. Was, well, what is that? The speaker was a long winded speaker. And when he got through, he said, Well, I'm sorry I spoke for so long. I left my watch at home. And somebody in the back of the audience yelled out at him, There's a calendar behind you. <laughs> Okay, you win. Now, now, ladies and gentlemen, you know I don't have very much of a sense of humor, and obviously you can see where I got that from. Hey, Dad, who's your favorite superhero? My favorite superhero? Well, it doesn't sound like a superhero, but Donald Duck. Oh, boy. Here we go. All right, folks, you're going to hear another one of my dad's many talents that he has. Go ahead, Dad. I know you're you're dying to do it. <laughs> yep that was that was my life growing up folks was was donald duck always doing that or donald duck sneezing so yeah it, it looks even better that's the good thing like you know because now you got that thing going on underneath your chin where it just kind of wobbles from side to side the turkey waddle. Yeah, you're you're getting a turkey waddle when you do the duck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Hey, Dad, I'm giving you two plane tickets. One is to a place that you've already been, and one is to somewhere that you have never been. Where are these two tickets to? The place I've already been that I would love to go back to is Guam. Oh, really? Yeah. Why is that? It is beautiful to me. It is the way I've described it to people. It is an uncommercialized Hawaii. Oh, I agree with that. Now, when, when did you go there? You said you'd already been there. When I went there twice. Oh, you did. When you were stationed there, you had been there about six months oh. and your mom and I came over for a, a visit. Well, why haven't you told me this till now? <sighs> sometimes you never learn <laughs> then the and, second you were there uh somebody and his wife got married on guam oh yeah that's right beach wedding hmm, how could i yeah. forget we went over for that wedding well and it was a beautiful wedding it was good now your last question who is your favorite son no no you don't have to answer that Christian's actually going to probably listen to this, so we'll, we'll just we'll just not get you in trouble. All right, Dad, 
Hey, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Just kind of bring us up to to where you are, where you've been, because you've you've done some hmm? question. What's that? What about the other question? I I did. I already asked you, but I wasn't going to force you to answer. The ticket to the place I've never been. Touche. I apologize. Where is it that you would want to go that you have never been before? I would love to go to Beijing. Oh. Well, now you would love to go to Beijing. What's in Beijing that you want to see? The Great Wall, the Tiananmen Square, uh, just all of the government locations. Now, can you actually go? No, not right now. I mean, well, I could. Just, that, just not right allowed, now. I am allowed to now, yes. Okay, well, we'll get into that later <laughs> on because that's going to play into a lot of it. I just, I had to play the game a little bit where I, I lead up the suspense of, well, why wouldn't he be able to go to Beijing? So now that we've gotten through all the questions, thank you for keeping me online, Dad. <laughs> You've been doing that for 40 plus years. So uh, how about this? Take us through your background. Kind of give us a little bit of where you've been, what you've done in life, because you you have done quite a bit and you've had some pretty interesting jobs in your life. And now you're probably doing one of your greatest jobs ever called retirement. And even in retirement, you're doing a lot. So let us know what you want us to hear, Dad. <laughs> Uh, well, I was born at a very young age. And it continues. Yes. Uh, I was actually born in the city of McAllister, Oklahoma, which at the time was the location of Oklahoma's only penitentiary. Had an uncle who was a guard there at the penitentiary, but that is neither here nor there. My wife sometimes says, that I was born in cell block number nine. <laughs> now, I don't know why it was number nine, but we lived in McAllister. We lived next door to my grandparents. Uh, they were kind of a pair. My mother and dad both worked at that time, so my grandparents kept me. I mean, it was just walk across the backyard. And my granddad was 6'3", weighed 350 pounds. Mm -hmm. of pure muscle. My grandmother was 4'8", and granddad could hold his arm out, and she could walk under it and never touch. And pure muscle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, granddad was a blacksmith, and even I remember just old enough to toddle, I would go to the blacksmith shop with him. And he would always, once I got old enough that he could trust me a little bit, he would let me put pieces of iron in the forge and get them heated up, and bang on them like he did. But granddad, I knew, was strong. He could take a cold horseshoe in his bare hands and straighten it out. Now, I, how, how old was he the last time you saw him do that? Uh, he was probably in his 50s. Golly. And I also knew when my mother decided she wanted to spank me, I would run to Grandpa 
And he had these big ham hock hands that as soon as I'd run and jump in his lap, those hands would go across my back. And there was not a spot on me that my mother could get to to spank. (laughs) But we lived next door to them until I was five, at which time my dad felt the call into full-time ministry. We moved to a small church, which, by the way, is the church I learned to hate spam at. Uh, It's a country church, very small. It was about an hour's drive from McAllister. And um, I started to school in that town. Speaking of schools, because Dad pastored small churches, we did move around quite a bit. Uh, Before I graduated high school, I went to 13 schools, four of which were in the third grade. So in the third grade, I changed schools four times. My senior year, I went to one school. My dad had pastored a lot of small churches. Because of that, we moved very frequently. And I went to 13 schools before I graduated high school. In the third grade, I actually went to four different schools that one year. My senior year, I went the first semester to a high school in Oklahoma City. The second semester, I went to a high school in Tulsa. I had every school I had been in, I was involved in music, involved in both instrumental and vocal music. Um, My senior year, I had tried out for a number of things, and I ended up with a vocal music scholarship at a local college. But uh, it wasn't enough of a scholarship that could pay for the entire thing, and I knew we really couldn't do it i and there was no way i was going to go on student loan so i went into the i signed up for the air force i was 17 had to get my parents to uh give to sign up to let me join and i thought okay i'll do this then i'll let the air force pay for my school after four years that way i'll have four years of rest where i won't go to school I get down to basic training. They put us through a whole series of tests. During the time that MTI was yelling at me constantly. Why are you looking at me like that? Why? uh, If the shoe fits. Touche. Anyway, uh, it started out about 5,000 of us took the tests. And the group gradually got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it ended up. 75 of us were chosen to go to Yale University to learn Chinese. Now, of that 75, 55 of us actually graduated and completed the course. And out of that 55, there were two of us that took extra training so we could learn to read and write it. Everybody else just learned to speak and understand. And it was actually through that 
thing that uh, the speaking and understanding is the way they taught it to us, I actually started thinking in Chinese. I didn't have to go through the translation process. Hence Hmm. the idea of wanting to go to Beijing. All of our instructors at Yale were from Beijing. Oh, wow. Okay. And the Beijing has, they have a particular way of speaking that is very much like, say, the Boston area of the United States, where they tend to put an R on the end of the words that end with an A, like idea Mm. or pulse. Well, the Beijing, the people from Beijing tend to put an R on the end of their words. And I have never heard anyone speak with that Beijing accent since I left school. And I would just love to be able to go and and listen to that. Uh, But after the school, I went to uh, San Angelo to learn the security police. They then sent me, well, I had uh, orders to go to Pakistan. And two weeks before I was to ship out to Pakistan, the orders were changed to go to Vietnam. Now, wait, why why did you learn security police stuff if you were learning Chinese? It wasn't security police. It was security process, ah. radio. Uh, I had a top secret with access to crypto clearance. This was to tell, tell me and teach me how to deal with the information that I was going to be obtaining. Okay. Okay. And uh, then when I got the orders to ship out to Vietnam, I was sent to Travis Air Force Base, California, to uh, qualify on the M16, which I qualified um, expert on that. Now, real quick, pause. See, here's where our family has a bit of an issue. So my brother and my dad both scored expert on M16. And I was the only one for so many years that didn't do that. And I was the one that that had to wait until what? I finally did it two years ago. I finally qualified as an expert on the M4. So All is now well. The triad is complete. We all three of us have our expert ribbon. Well, I had, while I was in basic training, I qualified expert on the M1, which is what we were using then. Now, I will tell you this. We fired 60 rounds and there were 80 holes in my target. So did you really, really score expert? Well, the guy mm-hmm. that was to me only had 50 holes in his target. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, the M16 was a little different story, though. But then after uh, I got through at Travis, they shipped me to um, the Philippines, Clark Air Force Base. I spent a week. To, I think it was about a week and a half there. They actually, they were trying to acclimate us to the climate, the humidity, the heat. Plus, they were doing some additional training before we went into Vietnam. Mm. I, during my first trip tour of Vietnam, 
I, uh, it was not as good as the second. I did two back-to-back tours there. Uh, the first tour, I ended up losing weight. By the time I got through, I uh, that first tour, I was down to 145 pounds because I had spent almost a year eating nothing but sea rations, which had a mm. World War II date on them. Ugh. Ugh. Sea rations. A yes. whole year of that? Yes. Ugh. So, you know, so when you say a tour, you're talking about it is a 365. So it's it's a full year is one tour, right? And you did two back to back, right? I did get to come home between the two tours. Now, somebody says you're a slow learner, aren't you? I mean, after the one year, you extended for another one. <laughs> well, it was put. They asked me to extend, and I said no, and they said okay, and I thought that was too easy. The Air Force is not that easy. <laughs> and they said, we'll station you at Clark in the Philippines, and then we'll send you TDY, temporary duty, to uh... Vietnam. And the Philippine was an 18-month tour. Well, it didn't take a mathematical genius to figure, okay, 18 months, 12 months, I'll take the 12. <laughs> well, the Air Force hasn't changed very much. None of the branches really have. <laughs> uh, no, I, didn't, I don't think so. Uh, but I spent the two years, uh, let's see, the polite word would be interviewing prisoners. Interviewing interrogating ah. maybe be the other term that's used uh-huh. listening to chinese radio communications both ground to ground and air to ground um and since i was one of the few that could read and write part of that time was i had special assignment to break chinese codes they would encrypt their messages they would send them we would break the encryption, equate it to a Chinese character, and then translate those Chinese characters into English. It They did it on a once-every-12-day schedule. And typically, on that 12th day, when they changed, we could have the code broken out in about three hours. Wow. Now, how often did they change the, the encryption? Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we so, I mean, y'all were getting really, really good at it. That's at why adjusting I, I still love to work cryptograms. Mm, yep. And, and ladies and gentlemen, he does it with a pen. He doesn't do it with a pencil. He does it with an ink pen. It is horrible to watch because I'm sitting there trying to actually look and just get one right. And he's over there already through all the lines, figuring them out. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. <laughs> now, Dad, you used to tell us a story when we were younger about how when you all would go up into the C-130s and you would listen to communications, a lot of the guys were were shorthanding and then they would later write stuff down. Do you remember the story? Oh, yeah. And this was in the C-130, in the back of the C-130. And also when I was actually at my listening station on the ground, I would take an old standard typewriter, not an electric, a standard and i would put it 
on my station. And as they were speaking in Chinese, I was typing out the transcript of that in English in real time. And when I my shift was over with, I was through. Everybody else that was taking shorthand would have to go back through the tapes and listen to the tapes and transcribe them. Now you you talked about how you would be you you would actually take prisoners, take Chinese speaking prisoners. Now, when you were quote interviewing them, <laughs> were you the one that was doing the talking and, and the communicating, or was somebody like asking questions and you were just translating them? In most cases, it was actually me questioning them. Uh, occasionally there would be others there asking questions, but in most cases, it was me trying to get the information. Typically, when we got uh, a prisoner, they would say what this person had been doing. They So we pretty much knew what questions we needed answers to. And we did, once we got through with everything that we did, we would do a daily report to the White House that frankly, had to be declassified before we could send it to the White House. We could not tell any information about this is how we got this information. All we could tell the White House is this is verifiable. It is true. So you were asking these questions of these people, but you couldn't actually state that it was from a Chinese speaking individual. Right. Well, why, why is that? How, how long after Vietnam did we finally say, yes, there was Chinese in the Vietnam conflict? Wow. Well, it has been, let's see, this is 2022. It's probably been about 25 to 27 years ago. The U.S. finally admitted there were Chinese fighting in Vietnam. And you're sitting and, there going, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. You know, we could listen to them taking off in their planes from Haiphong Airport, which is in southern China. And they would actually be flying their MiGs over North Vietnam. Wow. And yet, why, why was it such a big deal to not state that they were involved in the conflict? Politics. Uh, well. I, you know, that's all I could say it to is you know they they wanted the u.s to believe that it was strictly internal to vietnam and there were also russian pilots that were flying aircraft there too they did teach us uh, a few phrases of russian as well so that we could actually we could hear okay we know this guy is russian because he just said this phrase all the Russian linguists and say, okay, you need to take over. Wow. So you all would go up, fly around, and you would just listen to communications that were coming through. So what what did the inside of that C-130 look like? Like what how was it set up with listening stations and antennas? The from the outside, unless you knew what you were looking for, you could not tell it was an EC-130. Uh, on the inside, the listening stations were just racks with radios on them. We had our headsets on. Uh, 
typically you had to turn the volume up really loud to overcome the noise of the C-130 engines. Plus, the Chinese transmitters were not the best in the world, and they had a lot of static on them. Uh, But the antennas were hidden in the wing tanks. And the only way you could tell the difference, our wing tanks were very slender and long. The other wing tanks on the regular C-130s were kind of fat and stubby. Okay, so that's how you could tell from the tanks. Yeah. The uh, Now, the majority of what I didn't do a lot of the flight status, but the majority of what I did was actually listening to communications on the ground particularly since I had the uh, reading and writing capabilities, they wanted me on the ground so that when the messages came in, I could decode them and translate. Okay. And so the reason that you all were declassifying them in order to send them to the White House was simply to, as a political buffer, basically, for the White House to say, you know, we got this information, it's verifiable. We don't know where the information necessarily came from. So it was one of those, so I don't have to say, so need to know type situations. It was plausible deniability. Okay. You know, we, hey, you know, we know this is true, but we don't know how it came and we didn't assign anybody to get it. Wow. All right. So what else did you do while you were in country? Like what other types of of things did you do experience? I worked very strongly with the local Chinese community there. I was stationed at Da Nang. Pardon me. Da Nang is the way we would pronounce it. Da Nang's the Americanization of it. Uh, Just like it is the Chinese city is not Shanghai. It's Shanghai. Uh, But we would, I worked with a missionary there who had a large Chinese community. And any of the successful businesses in South Vietnam, you could walk into them and they were Chinese businesses. Um, I made so many friends with that Chinese community. And when I left, they gave a bundle of gifts to just to wish me well as I went off about my business. Um, we would go downtown. Now, this is aside from working with the Chinese, but some of my Chinese speaking buddies and I would go downtown to eat at a restaurant. And we would be there carrying on a conversation in English listening to the Chinese conversations going on behind us. And um, we got a lot of intelligence information just from those conversations that went on. Wow. Wow. So the ability to actually be able to, you got so good that you could carry on a conversation and listen in a different language. But now I know why I wasn't able to get away with a lot of stuff. Even when I thought you weren't listening, you were actually listening. And you got, you thought you got away with more than you did. Sometimes I just let it go. Man, this is explaining so much, people. You have <laughs> no idea. Most of my life has been a lie at this point now. 
<laughs> aren't we all uh, why don't you tell us about whenever you went to go get a haircut oh yeah you know when you're in vietnam during your one year, year tour you get a one week r&r where does a chinese linguist go for r&r my first one i went to hong kong or in chinese shangdong uh the second one i went to taiwan but the the one nathan is referring to is the first one uh i get to hong kong I leave Vietnam during the middle of the monsoon season. I mean, mud everywhere. You couldn't, when we climbed on the plane, the floor of the, the plane was covered with mud from people dragging it in on their shoes. I get to Hong Kong. Wait, was it was it like that scene in Forrest Gump when when they're like going through the muck and he's like, and it was raining and the rain's coming down like crazy? Yes, just it, like that 24 7 during the monsoon season and you we they even put board you know the the literal boardwalks on top of the mud so we didn't have to walk directly in the mud and you know i checked into that hotel in hong kong and i noticed there was a barbershop right down the street from the hotel and I hadn't had a haircut. I hadn't been treated to anything for almost a year. And I decided I'm going to go to that barbershop and get the works. And I put all my my civvies and walked down to the barbershop. And I'm having to wait on the barber. So I pick up a magazine off the table. And this magazine has a picture of Mao Zedong on the cover. And I open up the magazine and it's full of thoughts, you know, his sayings. And I'm going through the magazine. Well, the barber calls me to the barber chair, and he's got his straight razor. He's shaving my neck. He's shaving the back of my neck. He's shaving my face with that straight razor. And he said, you're in the Air Force. You're stationed in Vietnam, and you're, you speak Chinese. I said, uh, how do you know this? He said, well, that's Vietnam mud on your shoes. He said, it's, it's rec immediately recognizable. I said, okay, that's one. He said, you're in civilian clothes. The civilian clothes have been well worn. And the only one in Vietnam that's allowed to wear civilian clothes are, is the Air Force. So you've got to be Air Force. I said, that's two. Now, what about the other one? He said, when you picked up the magazine, you were reading it. Other Americans just picked it up and looked at the pictures. <laughs> well, I walked out of the shop and there were two men in black business suits, Chinese men, and they followed me to the hotel. I met up with a missionary friend of my dad's who was in hong kong and uh he took me all over hong kong into the new territories which is the portion of hong kong that's actually on mainland china hong mm -hmm. kong itself is an island and we would go back where the chinese population wore the the pajamas the conical straw hats and these two businessmen were back there 
I made sure that whole week I was there, I was with somebody the whole time because by that time, the U.S. government had told us that the red Chinese, communist Chinese, had a bounty on our heads. Now, in this is 1966. Uh, they said the bounty was $25,000, which in today's money is just over 22000 or not 22000 $223,000 in today's money. And that would make a pretty good life at that time there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they, of course, they wanted us alive. So yeah. they had, if they wanted it, they had to figure some way to take me alive. Well, if I'm with a group of people, they're not going to want to stir up because Hong Kong belonged to the British government at that time. They didn't want to stir up trouble with the British. Mm, so as long as you stayed within the British realm, you were safe. And with a group of people. Now, if I had not been with a group of people where there wouldn't be a scene created, they could have gotten away with it. Mm, okay. Wow. The, these guys followed oh, me. Wow. The final day there, I was invited to go to one of the Chinese churches. These guys followed me into the church. Now, the communists were not supposed to be anywhere near a Christian church. Uh, the Chinese pastor invited me up to, and he interviewed me similar to how you're doing. And asking, but he was asking me about my walk with Christ and all of the other things. Well, they knew the story about the, the vocal music scholarship. They knew I was heavily in the music, and they asked me to sing. So I sang How Great Thou Art in Chinese. And these men heard the testimony, they heard the song, and they heard the pastor's sermon that followed that. What happened after that point, I have no idea. But the seed was planted. And during that week, my parents and my grandmother, by that time, my grandfather had died. Uh, but my parents, my grandmother, kept me for those two years that I was in there, bathed in prayer. And there were times that the Holy Spirit would quicken them. You need to pray. Well, that they didn't know I was in Hong Kong on R and R. We didn't have cell phones then. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't pick up the phone and call them. But all three of them felt impressed to keep me on in prayer and to keep me safe for that week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just just while thinking, because, you know, I, I never got to know grandpa, you know, he, he died before I was born. Uh, grandma died. What? When I was two, three years old, mm. somewhere in there. And just, just to know that, you know, even in that moment, how connected they were with you in what was happening, just simply because of the relationship with God, you know, that, that they were able to know they needed to reach out and, and start praying in that way. 
That's really mm-hmm. neat to be able to see that. But why don't you why don't you get us into a little bit of your well, you you finish off that story. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, that was basically that was the end of the story. As soon as the service was over, I went back, spent the night, and the very next morning got on the plane to go back to Vietnam. Wow, that's crazy just to know that they knew who you were, right? Right. Like we this is the guy that we have to follow. Now, were they outside of the barbershop whenever you were there? Or so had they been there while you were the they entire were, time? But I went into the shop. Mm. They were only there when I came out. So obviously the barber had contacted somebody after he saw me reading the magazine. Wow, just the connection throughout. So how did that help you with your leadership style? Like, how did you start to develop your leadership style? Because you weren't necessarily on a team that you were leading. You were a buck sergeant at the time. Right. Uh, my leadership style really didn't did not come into being until after I left the military. You know, the the Vietnam years, they they wanted me to re-up. And frankly, I told them no. You can't pay me enough to put up with what I put up with from the American people after I got home. Mm. Well, tell us about that. Like, what what happened? I mean, I know that we hear stories, but I want to hear your personal one on this. Like, what happened when you came home? You flew well, all the way from there on a on a one thirty. I know all. That's why you swear by the one thirty to this day. So, to the entire Herc community out there, uh, mad respect. You brought my dad home from Vietnam. So. Well, the the first time I came home was on a C-130. That was the lead between the two one-year tours. Uh, When I hit the U.S., the people that were there spit at me, called me everything under the sun. Uh, They called me a baby killer. The thing is, they didn't realize that for that whole year I was there, my ears were my weapon. I did not have a weapon in my hand. So I thought, okay, the next time I come home, this is not going to happen. The next time I came home, when it was my permanent change of station, I hit San Francisco. Immediately, I changed into civilian clothes. And I flew the rest of the way home as a civilian because I didn't want to put up with being called everything under the sun. And when they asked me to re-up, I said, no, I, I won't do that. And my leadership style kind of developed after that. Um, I typically, as a manager, in my business, I would uh, describe my leadership style as laissez-faire. In okay. other words, you know what to do. You know how you want to do it. I'll stand back and let you do your job, and I'll run interference for you. Um, See, a lot of the people that we've had on, they they've focused on the servant leader. They focused on on those types of. Uh, you're actually the first that has said laissez faire. Yeah, you know, I just 
it always bugged me when somebody tried to micromanage me Mm -hmm. and my when i went from i started out in programming went into systems analysis and systems design and when i was promoted from a systems analyst to a manager of an IT department, my director called me into his office and he said, Howard, we are promoting you because you're the very best at what you were. And he said, I emphasize that word were. He said, now as the manager, it's your job to hire the people who are the very best at what they are and to listen to them. And that speech from Jim was the thing that probably directed the rest of my career. You know, I would always tell the guys, you do your job, you do it in the best way, you know what the assignment is. If you run into any issues, you contact me and I will run interference for you to see that you get your job done. By the same token, you keep me informed where it is because I don't want to be blindsided. Okay, wow. And hearing you describe with having the laissez-faire, it, it, it really puts into perspective because I think a lot of people think ill of the laissez-faire uh, approach. But the way that you're describing it, it's kind of taking that micromanager and eliminating that person out. You don't want to be in the people's business. You want to let them do what they know how to do as long as they're doing it right. And then only bring you in if there's a problem or something that could potentially be a problem. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. You know, as long as they keep me informed, I can go to upper management and i'll say okay this is where the project is this is what we're doing on the project uh you know i mean i kind of liken it to the christian walk god doesn't just tell us every step to take now when we go to him and ask him for guidance he gives it but he doesn't control our every movement and neither should we as managers control every movement of our subordinates Mm, i like that i like that and you know you're of i I hate to say this dad but you're of the old school mentality where we use the idea of manager who manages people now what's your take on the idea that managers manage processes leaders lead people is there a difference for you yeah Number one, I was a project manager who did manage processes as well as lead people. The last 20 years of my career, I had a group, a team of uh, 15 people that I led. But at the same time, I also led the processes. And it's kind of like you, you had to play wear two hats. You... I think the thing that I used as an example for leading people is a little keychain. And I mean the chain that has the little ball links on it. Mm -hmm. You can pull that chain and it'll follow you, but you can't push that chain and get it done. 
That's Ooh. the between being a leader and being, say, a commander or a dictator. A leader leads his people into what needs to be done. Oh, I like that. I'm actually going to turn that over to my ALS students now. And that's what I'm going to do whenever I do leading now. That's that is I have never heard you ever say that before. Or maybe I wasn't listening. Maybe I didn't have the ability to listen and, you know, whatever at the same time. All right. So let's get into really what the meat is. I mean, that that is an awesome lead up for everything that we're doing. But I want to know, how do you, dad, define spiritual resilience? The quick and dirty version of it is when you get knocked down, stand back up and start over or pick up from where you are. Um, I mean, it's even as a Christian, life is not easy. The spiritual resilience part of it, the one thing that I that comes to mind in answering your question is uh, right after the Y2K, you know, everybody was all upset. We're going to the year 2000. All of these computer programs were set up for a two-digit year. Well, for years, I've been preaching to the the programmers that were programming, go for the four-digit year. Don't get stuck on that two-digit. And the companies were spending their whole budget on trying to get everything set up so they could handle the year 2000. After this happened, a month after everything went, the the world didn't come to an end, the sky didn't fall, I was laid off. Mm -hmm. What do I do? I'm 50-some years old. Nobody wants a worker that is past their prime. Um, started praying, started seeking God. You know, my first thought was, this is the end of the world. Mm. But yet, for seven months, I didn't have a job. We would go to church on Sunday morning. I played in the church orchestra. I would sit down at my music stand, open my music, and there would be a $50 bill pinned inside the music. My wife would sing in the choir. She would pull her music folder out, and there would be a $50 bill in that. We would uh, immediately, there's $100. Okay, the first thing that came out of it was $10 for ties. Mm-hmm. Uh, even our eye doctor's wife on Mother's Day called and said, do you mind if I break some groceries by? said, I just don't want to see Mother's Day ruined for your wife. I said, I'm willing. You know, for once in my life where I had always done stuff for myself, I was willing to let God let other people Bless me. Um, probably the hardest thing in my life because I had always been a standalone type guy. I can do it. 
Well, because for so many years you you were doing it. I mean, folks, you got to understand. Like we we took yearly vacations. We went to Hawaii. We went to we went to Florida a lot. You know, Disney World, Disneyland, uh, making trips every single year with family, friends, and and then to all of a sudden not be able to do that. And I think probably the hardest thing on you all, because I remember watching watching this happen, you know, watching it unfold and not really fully having a good grasp on it because, you know, I was away. I graduated high school in 98, you know, just to to know that you didn't even let on to us really that much about what you were going through. No. But you know, it taught me to rely fully on God. During that seven months, I was without work. I never missed a car payment. I never missed a house payment. And we never missed a meal. God always provided. And then the work came. Shortly after that, we moved to Kansas City. We're there for nine months. And then a job opened up in Tulsa that I had interviewed for before we moved to Kansas City. You know, sometimes we get ahead of God. Mm. And I, frankly, got ahead of God on that move. But God saw fit to have that resilience there so that we could bounce back, move to Tulsa. Mm. The thing about it is that business went bankrupt a year and a half. <laughs> okay, I'm out of a job again. This time I was only out of a job for two months. And the company that I had always quoted as the company that would be the, the job I went to in Tulsa, they kept saying, now, if we got into this business, what would be the company that would be our competitor? And I would always quote this company's name. Well, that company made me an offer. That you couldn't refuse. Right. <laughs> More ways than one. <laughs> and that was, I mean, the company changed hands five times in 20 years that I was with them, but I was with, worked with the same people for 20 years. And it was a job that I loved. It was a job that I had wished I had had for years, but the resilience, the bouncing back, following God's guidance, God had the rewards there. Okay. Well, how did you cultivate spiritual resiliency within a team like that, because you were a consultant. So you were all over the country, literally all over the world, installing systems, flying out on Sundays, flying back on Thursdays. Uh, you were living a great life on the road. I mean, you were uh, you, you, Hilton Diamond member, uh, Northwest, and then Delta. Uh, I was a diamond with Delta as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you were, you were racking up the points and stuff. How did you build resiliency for your team members while you're out on the road doing those? You know, I would really, um, we did a lot of, it, this was pre-Zoom, mm -hmm. but we did a lot of conference calls. Uh, 
I would get a new employee and basically I would take them with me and show them, you know, these are the things you put up with in travel, but this is how to rise above it. This is what you need to do to take advantage of it. This is how you need to be resilient when these uh, clients are difficult to handle. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, then, then you would come home on Thursday afternoon and then you have a wife at home. You got mama and you got Christian and I. Christian is is local there in Tulsa. I've been stationed everywhere during this time. How did you build resiliency within us as a family unit during that time? Or even even before? How how have you focused on that in your opinion? Oh, that's a difficult question. Why is that? Uh <laughs> Frankly, I, you know, I wish I had done a better job of focusing resilience during that time. Uh, I mean, I would get home on Thursday. Friday was usually spent doing expense reports, writing up trip reports. Uh, sometimes the conference calls with my team would occur on Friday. So even being home on Friday, uh, there was always work to do. Now, I would try to schedule it so that I was at least done by noon. The good thing about it is mom kept the lawn mowed. She did what would typically be the man's job. She kept the house up. So on weekends, you did the laundry and you got ready for the next trip out. But at the same time, I was able to use the benefits of the hotel rooms, the air miles, to bond together uh, again for those trips with the families. Um, met some wonderful people that that became lifelong friends even going to all of these different locations. Um, you, by that time, were, you were in the military. Uh, number one, the two trips to Guam that I mentioned earlier in the conversation, basically Delta Airlines paid for those trips. We flew first class both times. And it cost me. And that's that's not a short flight, y'all. That's about 24 hours from Oklahoma to Guam. So Yeah. And it cost me a total of $95 for both of our tickets. And that was because I had to pay the tax on them. We stayed in the Hilton on Guam for free on their executive floor, which included an evening meal. Yeah, a, a little little quick side story on that, y'all. So the second trip that they made whenever we got married, when my wife and I got married, uh, my dad had gotten us a hotel room at the Hilton, at the same Hilton that they were staying at on Guam. There's not too many uh, Hiltons uh, <clears throat> on the island of Guam. I mean, it is 26 miles by eight miles. Uh, so they, they got us a room, and whenever we showed up to go put our bags up in that room, it, it was the room adjacent to with a connecting door to my parents' room. 
my my honeymoon night, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so dad, being a diamond with them, decided to give them a call and was like, this is not going to happen. It was a completely full hotel at this point in time. And he's like, my son will not be spending his wedding night next to his parents. This is this is not going to happen. And so they actually ended up moving somebody out of their room into the room we were supposed to have and then gave us their room. They're like, now, do you mind if it's on a different floor? No, no, I do not. I do not. Hey, dad, you said that you you think you didn't do a good job, but I, I really have to say that you did do a phenomenal job in, in doing that. You may not have thought that you were qualified to do it or that you were up to the task or that you even did good. Uh, in raising us in our resiliency, but I think everything that you showed us growing up to Christian and I, Christian is my brother, y'all, uh, everything that you did showing Christian and I was just leading up to the people we were meant to be. You know, Christian and I weren't really close growing up, uh, but since that time, we really have become very, very close, much like you and you and Uncle Randy you know, weren't very close growing up, mainly because of your years, years, ages and difference. But then, you know, as you all got older and, and wiser and had children of your own and stuff, you started to see the importance in that. So do you have any other moments when you had to rely on your spiritual pillar to make it through either in Vietnam or, or later on? Well, I've already covered the, the, the one incident where I had lost the job. Uh, one incident that comes to mind in Vietnam, I had agreed with a buddy of mine to take his shift one night, which meant I, I worked a double shift, um, but he had a party. I knew it was going to be a drunken party that I... I really didn't approve of it, but I thought, okay, I'll do this. I worked that all day, worked that night. Basically, it ended up um, two 10-hour back-to-back shifts. So I was on duty 20 hours. And when I got back, my buddy was in the barracks next to mine. The barracks during the night had been hit by a rocket. It burned to the ground. My buddy that was in his bunk was killed in that rocket attack. Mm. When I got over to my barracks, the shrapnel from the rocket actually was had hit through my bunk. Mm. If I had been sleeping there, even though it had hit the barracks next door, I would have been filled with shrapnel in that bunk. You know, that's where God was a pillar. And then, again, with my mom and dad and my grandmother, uh, we started comparing notes and times. And they immediately had gone to prayer at the time this was happening because they felt the movement You know, other things have happened. Uh, When I was 45, I had a heart attack. And God controlled everything. 
I was out of the hospital, and half the time they told me I would be in there. I was in church before people thought I should even be walking around. Um, At that time, I didn't realize that that heart attack was due to exposure to Agent Orange. But yet, even at that point, God had stuff under control. It was a, a bounce back, but it was relying on God for his direction, for his healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So bring us up to present day. You've, you're retired now, kind of-ish, in a way. Well, uh, yeah. What are, what are you, yeah, I know. What, what are you doing now? to continue this this way that you help people? I had a veteran service officer work with me and kept telling me, don't give up. Don't give up. I would go so far with trying to get disability claim approved. The VA would come back and say, no. The veteran service officer would say, don't give up. Howard, pray go do uh i ended up as far as the va is concerned i'm a hundred percent disabled permanent and total and i decided you know this service officer really worked with me good christian man and i can give back to the veterans community just like he did and i started going to classes taking all sorts of classes. I am now accredited as a service officer by the VA, and I'm writing claims through the American Legion. And I see, typically in a day, I will see five to seven veterans and or widows to help write their claim. And if it's a new claim, Sometimes we're looking at two to two and a half hours. But I not only went to classes and got that accreditation, but I I have to go to refresher classes twice a year to maintain that accreditation. And I do this all on my own time. It's all volunteer. Nothing is reimbursed, but it is my chance to give back to the veterans who have willingly served their nation. And that's all the way from World War II up until getting out of the service last week. Right. In fact, I just worked with one yesterday that had gotten out of the service in May. Oh, wow. In fact, May the 3rd was his last day. Wow. And ladies and gentlemen, he he does this out of the goodness of his heart. It's not just like he's getting paid to do this, but he's doing it because he understands what we go through in the military. And I know that there's a large contingent of listeners that are not military related, but you should understand that the VA system is still broke. The VA math is horrible. Uh, the way that that stuff is figured out now that I'm two years away from retirement, my dad's helping me out to kind of pull together information to, to know what I'm supposed to be looking for. Uh, it's, it's a system. It's, it's not perfect. Um, but 
people like my dad are doing their part to help us out, to get us over the finish line and to get us the disability and the pay that, that we deserve. So kudos to you, dad, for continuing to do that. Plus, you're also a docent at the Oklahoma History Museum in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Tell the us about that. Military Museum. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to say it, say it right. You know, the general is going to get upset if you don't. Oh, probably. Yes. Uh, well, hey, dad. Why don't you kind of take us to a close? Is there anything else that you want to you want to say? Hang in there. Uh, you know, my my life has been so full. I there's not any way on this broadcast that I could cover 75 years worth of experiences, yeah. almost 76. But the one thing I found is God first, family second, and everything else will fall into place where it should be. Okay. Well, those those are great words to live by because I've been living by them for 42 years now. Uh, Dad, final question. What are you reading or what do you recommend people listen or read? Well, I read a lot. No, oh, yes, you do. Yeah, the one that I just recently started reading is a book that was given to me by a man in our small group, and it is called Imagine Heaven by John Burke, and it is an outstanding book where he has interviewed people who have died and gone to heaven. And he goes through what they experienced when they did this. Wow. Imagine Heaven by John Burke. Did I get that right? Yep. Yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you, you've been listening to my dad, Howard Coy. Now, this is coming out two days after Father's Day. But I wanted to make sure that I took this time to sit down with him just to just to kind of get his words out there and, and what I and how I was raised with my family. Uh, Dad, you are my hero. You have always been there for me. You have always supported me in everything that I have done. Uh, you have shown me how to be a father to my son, your grandson, Stanley. Uh, you showed me how to be a husband to a wife. And when you disagree, how to have those conversations on how to disagree in a marriage that is biblically built. So thank you, Dad, for everything that you have done for me, my family, for Christian. We are grateful. Today's episode is only possible thanks to my friend, and my producer, G. Frazier, with 369sounddesign.com. Uh, Jeff, you have your, your work cut out on this episode because we had an interruption where, we had, where you're going to have to splice something, but you are so amazing by what you do, man. I am, I am so grateful. Uh, we are blessed by the entire team here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. We will see you next week.